that there is a time and a place for humble engagement in the social contract in today's world so that the participatory principles of democracy can survive. Welcome to the Responsibly Different Podcast, sharing stories and insights from people harnessing consumer purchasing power to improve the world. What would you do without the internet? Think about that. No Netflix, no email, working remotely wouldn't even be a possibility. Or what would you do if you had slow internet access? On today's show, I sat down with Karim Durda, the president and chief operating officer of the B Corp certified GWI, an internet service provider, or ISP as you will frequently hear it referred to, to discuss the impact and importance that ISPs play in social justice and equity today. Talk to us a little about GWI, how it got started, and, and what brought you to GWI? Yeah, I mean, uh, so GWI has been around for over 27 years. And it was the first ISP uh, to bring, actually, dial-up to the state of Maine. It had tons and tons tons of customers. Then it was the first, cus- first ISP to bring, actually, DSL to the state of Maine. And it was the first one to bring fiber optic networks to the state of Maine. So it's been around, it's been around a long, long time. And it's, it's a, one of those companies that's deeply entrenched in communities, uh, does a lot of work with municipal, municipalities, incredible amount of depth in working with public policy leaders, legislators, uh, congressional staff, and uh, on a national level, working with industry associations, essentially to further the cause of high-speed broadband. And it's been instrumental in championing causes, which I would humbly say are very forward-leaning when it comes to consumer empowerment. Uh, For example, we champion the cause of uh, net neutrality in in the state of Maine, uh, data privacy in the state of Maine, uh, these are things which we hold very dear and true to our hearts. And uh, and it's very pro-consumer oriented, extremely pro-consumer oriented. We believe that the consumer should be at the center of the decision-making process that affects their lives. And to some extent, or to even a large extent now, post-pandemic, you know, the Internet is not just something you have on the side. Right? It's... It's part of civilization. It always has been, but now it's become even heightened part of civilization. These, this is an infrastructure uh, that if we do a good job of it, you know, should last 30, 40, 50, 60 years in the future. So um, it's an indomitable part of the way we live, the way we work, the way we educate, the way we interact. And so it has to be an a infrastructure that can be resilient, reliable, redundant, and stand the test of time. So the reason I joined, I joined about five and a half years ago, and I was a, I was part, of, I was at a point in my career where I really wanted to do three things. One was have an impact on a human scale, on a large human scale, at, at this point in my career. Uh, second was to do it 
with a world-class capable expertise driven team and the third thing was to do something that would act as a lodestar to either the community I'm in or my peer, my colleagues professionally, and essentially be part of the changing dynamic in the 21st century where the economy is driven by, and it will keep on being driven by, not just by companies who think they just can be just be companies, but by members of human society. And whether you want to say you're a consumer or you're a, you're a provider, but it's members of human society that are going to drive the economy. And so those are the three things. And I was very, very fortunate after much conversation that I intersected with Fletcher Kittredge, who is a CEO and founder and, and a dear friend of mine now. That's amazing. That's so awesome. And I can't wait to dig into uh, some of those things you mentioned. I know uh, GWI certified as a B Corp back in 2020. I'm curious, how did you all find out about certification and, and what inspired you to, to pursue it? Handful of the first couple of conversations after I joined was with, with Fletcher was, okay, so what are the ways that exist for us to walk the walk and talk the talk? And for the community our employees, uh, the people that we interact with and exchange with, what are, what are the mechanisms that exist for them to hold our feet to the fire? And we have, we, obviously, both of us at that time and even now, we're deeply thinking about, okay, so whatever, whatever we are trying to do that's infused in our DNA, how do we have it so that it is part of our corporate makeup? And if it's part of our corporate makeup, how do we do it so that our moral, ethical, and financial obligations to the world at large, to the consumer, to our employees, our vendors, to the planet, uh, how does that sort of get baked in and get baked in in a non-trivial fashion? And it's one thing to say, look, you know, I do such and such and such and print out 3,000 PR press releases and say, you know, that we do that. It's another thing to say, well, why don't you show us how you do it? And what is the, what are the benchmarks what are the actual obligations that you carry so that it it's sort of, sort of like a good house seal of approval that you know what you're talking about and then you're you know hold, held responsible <clears throat> so there had been some that prior to my join there had been uh, some thought and conversation about this very new nascent benefit corporation approach or a b corp certification approach um, b labs had just sort of come into vote had had come in um, prior Thanks to the efforts of Patagonia and Ben and Jerry, this whole idea of being a corporate citizen with a B Corp certification or being a benefit corporation, you know, was was alive and well, but it was still within certain pockets. And with B Lab sort of coming into its own and having a little mu muscle to it, said, okay, you know what? These are some mechanisms that need to be across an entire slate of companies and stuff. So. Fletcher at that time decided, and then our VP of culture, Heather, who led led the effort, we said, well, why don't we why don't we look into becoming a, a B Corp certified company? Especially because everything that we're doing has a longevity to it. And so if we are trying to bake stuff into our DNA, it should have some longevity to it. And the other thing we were looking at is how can we do things that allow the consumer to have trust and validation in us? So we're trying to, you know, we're trying to flip the table and empower the consumer and the customer. 
And the more we thought about it, we said, okay, you know, this really matches our sort of trajectory. It matches the way we do things on a day-to-day basis. Soon after, we realized that no telecommunications company had ever applied to be a B Corp certified company. So B Labs found itself in the unique position of actually learning about telecommunications and understanding what's going on and how to do things. And so the the process evolved. It got even more in depth, which is great because I think they learned as much as we were we were learning about the whole B Corp ecosystem. And uh, you know, it took like I think close to like 18 months. We had enormous amount of help. We had help from um, uh, Fiona Wilson, who is a principal and a, and a leader at the University of New Hampshire uh, sustainability ecosystem. We utilized her very much so when it came to understanding things, collating documents, and all of that stuff. It's it's an enormous undertaking. And as we kept on moving the ball forward, we we realized, wow. So if we can do this, we can essentially play a somewhat of a catalytic role in evolving a industry which has traditionally over the last 30 years been at the bottom, the absolute bottom of uh, rankings when it comes to trust by a consumer. I mean, you know, the telecommunications industry is rife with examples of how they've abused the responsibility they've had, uh, you know, with rapacious pricing. Um, They have redlined communities, cities and, you know, community, I mean, municipalities. For a very long time, it was a monopolistic endeavor with incumbents. Uh, so there's a, there's a lot of inertia there that we thought, okay, catalytic swing. If we were a B Corp, we can show there's a better way to do this, and so that's why we leaned into it. And I, I just couldn't be more couldn't be more proud. And I think it's the right thing to do. It's just absolutely the right thing to do. We've got tons of this economic inequality. We've got this clarion call for the necessity necessity of diversity and inclusion. You can't do this if you're following the Milton Friedman, you know, 1970s tract about, well, you need to maximize profit. Who he BS. No, you can't you can't just you know, it's not an either or proposition. It's not a zero sum game. And I think that's what a B Corp demonstrates that, you know, you can make profit and you can do it without being inhuman. So that's why. That's why. And it's and it's, you know. It allows you to run your business in a, in a really regimented KPI benchmark driven way. And then if you say, you know what, so uh, uh, what have you done in order to save the planet? I should be able to tell you, well, Ben, there, this is what we've done. And you should be able to say, show me. And I should be able to show it to you. And you say, that's not enough. And I have to say why it's not enough and what are we going to do about it? It allows for that level of engagement. Yeah, and transparency, which is great, which is great. That's so cool. Yeah. Uh, so let's dive into broadband utility land because I feel like, I mean, w- to your point, we all use the Internet. It's super important. It's I mean, it's it's more than just it, it, people's livelihoods depend on it. Right. I mean, everything from how people pay their medical bills to, you know, work now, you know, I mean, especially coming out of this pandemic time. And yet I know speaking for myself. I'm like, I don't know that I really even truly understand how these broadband utilities work. Right. Let's talk a little bit about broadband utility districts and what public asset ownership of that might look like and and how that might be important. Wonderfully delicious question. So the idea of utility districts is not is not alien. They're utility districts for electricity, 
their utility districts for water. I mean, that's something that's been around since the 1910s, 1920s. The idea at the end of the day for the utility district is if you are desirous of and if you want to plan for standing up infrastructure that is funded by the public, by the public taxpayer dollar, you should do it in such a way so that it respects the wishes of the public, right? You should do it in a way so that it should have the longevity that is independent of the vicissitudes of whatever market forces there may or may not be. Because when you're talking infrastructure, you're talking, you know, if you talk, if you think about it, in the 1920s, the rural edification program, which lasted from the 20s all the way to the 50s, I mean, it changed the course of this country. Every town, hamlet, village, city, municipality, every every place across this entire stitch of this land got electricity because of it. And the reason they got it, because the federal government said everybody, for the good of humanity, is going to get electricity from it. And as that was going on, co-ops were created, utility districts were created, because this is an infrastructure that shouldn't just be at the behest of a corporate entity. Corporate entities tend to be driven by and are incentivized by other factors. I'm not suggesting they are necessarily evil, but they're others, other factor. And so you want to have things aligned for the, inter for the public interest. So this idea of a utility district for broadband serves a purpose where there are unserved or underserved households. And what does that mean? Essentially, it means if you're unserved or underserved, it means you have really crappy internet, really crappy internet. And the, and the challenge with these locations are they're not very dense. You know, they're, they're not as dense as, say, Portland or or the seacoast area, you know, like Camden, or what, whatever those you know, population center, centers may be. So when it's not as dense and you're spending money to build infrastructure, the return on that money, if it's private capital, is really, 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 really hard. So that's why over all these years, um, private companies have not built to the rural areas, which is out of 330 million people, 160 million Americans do not have access to decent broadband. They just don't because the private companies didn't build out there. Imagine if in 1920, you know, the federal government said, well, you know what? We'll let the private companies build out electricity. Half the country won't have electricity. So why should, you know, half the country doesn't really have decent broadband. So one of the ideas behind the utility district is so if the taxpayer is paying for it, and there are various mechanisms. Now, obviously, the federal and state funds are coming in to build out all this broadband, right? So if the taxpayer is paying for it, why should it go to a company? Why shouldn't it go to the community to stand up a utility to be able to provide this service? Now, a private company can provide the expertise to design it, to build it, to operate it, to provide services on it, but the ownership of the asset should be to the community or communities. And so the utility district approach, which has been proving to be very successful in Vermont, so there's plenty of track record there. So Vermont is, is essentially organized itself into 10 districts. And they're building, you know, they're building all this, all this infrastructure. Certainly will be successful in Maine. The driving, driving force behind it is when you get towns, towns together, which is easier said than done because there's all these cultural differences, psychological differences, 
So it essentially allows it to be a glue for communities to work together. But when you get a utility district and it's off scale, then the project becomes very real, right? It's easier to build a project that has 20, 30 towns working all together than it is to do one, especially in this climate, right? So the, you got a bunch of inflationary pressures, you got supply chain issues, you got workforce dev challenges. Everybody in this country is building broadband, right? Everybody is in this, in this huge Sisyphean task, which means the bigger the project is, the more efficiency of scale you have, which means you get in front of the line to be able to do a whole bunch of things. And, hey, it's funded by the federal government. It's your taxpayer dollars. If it's your taxpayer dollars, you should own it. And these and these legal constructs are already existing. It's not something you have to, you know, invent. It's already on, on the books. So why not? So we are, when it comes to rural areas in the state, state of Maine or Vermont or even in New Hampshire, if, it, if you're unserved and underserved, we truly to our core believe you're going to be going to get federal and state monies. If you're getting it, you should own the asset. And if you own the asset, work with the other towns to stand up this utility district. And hopefully, we may be one of those people that you choose to partner up with to design a building, construct it, operate, and provide services. If we're not worthy enough, fine, there are others. So have a transparent RFP process. Put together your decision metrics and let the best company win. And so why not? Right? I think that is sort of the sort of equality of it all. And speaking of equality, you know, at some at some point, you need to be able to say, look, it needs to be affordable service, it needs to be universal service. Everybody should get it. And that's the that's a good thing about a utility district is the whole idea, the philosophy behind it is that everybody, everybody in that district gets the service. It's not like you're gonna pick and choose, it's only you, not you. No, it's universal service. And it's pricing that you then determine for your community. It is something, think of it like a grassroots um, way of determining your future. And you have an inherent vested interest in it. And that's, that kind of an approach tends to be extremely empowering. It's also complicated because it, allow, it allows and forces communities to work together when they may not have previous reason to do so. But now you have to. So you tend to sort of break down some walls. That's a good thing. Yeah. It's really a good thing, right? So that's that's, a, that's why we're we're huge proponent, proponents of it. If you're getting funded by the public, the public should own the asset. That makes a lot of sense. Is that – I'm curious, like, thinking on a national scale, is that model popular? Like, are more folks moving to this um, public – asset ownership, or is it really just in a few select places around the country? I think it's very dependent. I mean, geography depend. Uh, depend. The idea of co-ops certainly in the Midwest exists. So co-ops are like utility districts. Uh, New Hampshire has a very large electric co-op. It's enormously large. It has like 85,000 customers. So there are places in the country where you have either a community of smaller co-ops or a large co-op. Um, in the state of in, in Maine, there are there's a handful of small electric co-ops, not that many, small. Um, but certainly, when it comes to the broadband broadband idea, not every community is going to choose to want to be a utility district, and there are good reasons for that, right? It's too, maybe it's too time intensive, it requires a lot of expertise, 
etc., etc. And that's perfectly okay. That that's perfect, perfectly okay. But there are certainly, you know, large, large, I would say, agglomeration of communities which are thinking, oh, okay, how do I move the needle on my side? And I think it's it is resonating with them, especially when they look a little bit to the west and they see the entire state of Vermont getting organized as utility districts. I mean, the thing, the other thing about utility district is if you do it right, if you do it smartly, it's an open competition, right? So it it allows for free competition. You you have another choice now, whereas if it's just one private, you know, privately done network, most private networks are private. They're just doing it for themselves. I mean, we are we are sort of a again we are a different breed from the rest, so that we say, look, even in our own private networks, we allow allow people for open competition. Because open competition, at the end of the day, is the democratic way of, you know, I, I would humbly suggest leading a life. You need to be able to open everything up and say, you know what, we're not going to be somewhat dictatorial in the way we're going to manage and provide these kind of services. I mean, that's sort of nuts when you're talking about infrastructure that has all these linkages to the public benefit, you know. If I was selling a box of chocolates, different. There's a completely different, you know, situation. But here I am, you know, providing something that people essentially live on. I should be able to allow for competition. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I'm curious for folks that are listening that, um, you know, who knows where they might be located. If they're like, oh my gosh, this, you know, public asset ownership sounds amazing. I really want to push my community to do that. Is there like, a, I don't know, I, I want to use the word movement, but it, I'm curious, are there templates out there or, or what would you recommend to somebody to do? Like just reach out to their own municipality and start that conversation? They should reach out to us. <laughs> they should reach out to us and we can, we can talk them through. So depending on where you are, there are examples. Um, for example... In Utah, there's a very large network called Utopia um, that's along these lines. Chattanooga is actually one of the first ones that did that. And they, I believe, I forget what the network is called, but that that's one. So there are pretty large examples of networks that are sort of across the country. It is by no means the predominant way of standing up a network, but it is certainly in light of the $65 billion that are coming down from the feds it's certainly gaining traction as a option, right? So, and that's what we're saying is here is an option. Here is a way to think about how you want to access these funds for your community. Think about it. If it, if you think it will work for you, great. If not, okay, you at least evaluated an option. You've evaluated the chance of a possibility that doesn't allow you to be at the behest of one single, just one single entity. If you typed in municipal-owned networks, I mean, obviously the internet can cough up a whole bunch of stuff. Um, but there are there's the Institute of Self-Reliance, which is run by Chris Mitchell, a wonderful organization. Um, there's a bunch of books that now have been printed. Um, so yeah, seek us out. We can we can sort of give you the the landscape, the pasture of uh, grazing, where you can go and learn more about this. And so I'm curious, you know, as we're talking about the ways that uh, GWR are having an impact, I'm curious, what does digital inclusion mean in that context and how can it be used to help close that income inequality gap? 
So digital inclusion means that whether you are blessing the life, blessing this life with financial capacity, or you happen uh, to be not that fortunate, you should still get internet. You should still have access. You should still be able to afford it, right? So, and part of that push is because over the last 30, 40 years, we have redlined. It's just like uh, the banking industry redlined mortgages, just like uh, the housing industry redlined the availability of affordable housing. Um, our, our history is one where we have redlined um, communities that are of a lower earning uh, potential or lower earning benchmarks and metrics. Because we said, oh, you know what, they're too poor to afford this. Or, you know, we want to sell service and make more profit and they won't be a part of that which is absolutely maniacally evil, right? Because you're not creating these, forget the arbitrary barriers, right, of generational sustainability and generational wealth, but you're also creating these very arbitrary, racist, xenophobic, exclusionary things that have an enormous life cycle. It's not just for a year or two, right? So for example, you know, speaking of large projects, so in the 1950s and 60s, when the National Highway Transportation, you know, interstate highway system kicked in, it is an unassailable fact that when they were making decisions of where to take the highway, some of the places where the highway went was through black American communities. They literally took the goddamn highway and took it and split a community in half because they thought, eh, you know, we can do it. Why not? They didn't do that. In the white communities. They do that in black American communities. So what does that do? It splits a community half, and there are many studies done about this. Once it split the community half, the, the economic GDP of that community starts going down. The housing values plummet. You know, once the housing values plummet, okay, jobs become scarcer. When jobs become scarcer, now you have other socioeconomic dynamics kick in, and now you become an inner city. So think about it. In the 1950s, this, this started kicking in, and we as a society, at least in the United States, are grappling with that. It's not something that just happened. It's something we created. So the, the ramifications of certain decisions when it becomes comes to exclusion, intentional exclusion, are generational. And so one of the things that we at GWI, and we're not alone in this, there, there is a fairly large national movement around this is to be intentional about making sure we do not exclude. So, I mean, even a place like Portland, Maine, there's, there are places in Portland, Maine, which are predominantly immigrant or BIPOC or black America, or predominantly even lower income that have the crappiest internet around. Now, one can say, that's Portland. You should have better internet. It doesn't. Really? It's mind-bogglingly nuts. So, and then you have the rural parts of Maine, which have been just completely forgotten about because, you know, they're rural people. Ah. It's just nuts. It, it, it's, it, it's, it, it's evil. So digital inclusion means that you're going to include everybody. Now, just including them is not enough. You also have to make sure that it's affordable. You also have to make sure that you are imparting training so that you know not everybody knows how to use the internet just from birth you, know, you need 
you know, just because you and I know we can do this doesn't mean everybody else on the planet knows how to do it. So let's sort of, you know, let let go of our assumption set a little bit and just be human about this. So you're going to train them. You're going to try to make sure that they get computers that are not 1500 bucks because they can't afford it. So like, can we get them devices that are cheaper? Because if we can give them the first level of access, the first key so that they can get on, they can maximize it. Now, wondrous things tend to happen because, oh, okay, now I can actually go on the Internet and do a job that I may not have had the possibility of even considering. You know, now I can actually do a job so that I am not shackled by the lack of transportation. Now I can do a job that because I can access because I was able to do online education. Now I can do this, this, this. I mean, the things tend to flow, right? So now my kids can actually do homework, right, and participate with their teachers. All that stuff comes into play. And, you know, sometimes we can sort of get closeted in our own environment as well. You know what? My kids, they can get on the Internet and do homework on Google Classroom. Well, yes, but there's what? 10 to 15 percent of our population main today that can't do that. Can you imagine? That's not like five kids. That's not like 100 kids. That's thousands of kids that can't do their homework because they have crappy Internet. So that's what digital inclusion, that's what digital inclusion means. Got to get everybody in. Everybody. Yeah. That's super real. I mean, I know like my mom was a principal in a rural part of the state. And when the pan, when the pandemic happened, there were kids that couldn't do online learning because they didn't have access at home. And mom and dad are working and can't get the kids to the library or when the libraries are closed. It's like, well, what do you do? That's right. Um, it's so real and it's so important. Yeah, people are in parking lots mm-hmm. in front of McDonald's. I mean, we were setting up, <clears throat> we were setting up free Wi-Fi spots as quick as we can, just so that kids could do their homework during the pandemic. And we did that for a six-month stretch. We're not wireless people, but we thought, okay, we got to do something to get these kids, yeah, trying to get homework. Just got to. Now, at that time, the state of Maine also was really smart. They released some funds, which was under the CARES Act. <clears throat> so under the CARES Act. Um, some companies in low-income areas, in rural main areas, got money to bring fiber optic to those communities, which is great. So they were able to show, look, if we can do this, hey, you know, good things happen. Absolutely. Good things happen. Absolutely. And kind of extending that a little bit, going a little bit further with it, thinking about how we can build equity and social justice through this, what, what would be some of your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think that, so I breathe, my, my oxygen is equity, right? So I, I strongly to my core believe that if we are to play a particip- participatory role in addressing social inequality or economic inequality, you have to provide infrastructure that that goes and becomes part and parcel of communities that have been marginalized previously. You, you have to have this, this ability to push in and get them the tools. When I say them, I mean the communities we belong to, get these communities the tool that belong. And they need to participate in that. And the participation is not just one of assuming that just because you got it there that they will participate. And the part, it is to intentionally invite. It's intentionally to work with. It's intentionally to sit and say, 
let me be your brother and sister and just work with you and see what we can do here. And that's not a day effort. That's not a week effort. That is months or years effort. But we have to do that. And the reason why we have to do that is because social inequity and economic inequity has a lever has this massive lever called generational wealth. Thanks to the the wondrous things of capitalism and and money, time tends to play a very positive role um, or a very negative role when it comes to generational wealth. The negative role is that if you already have an equality and you happen to be on the top side of it, over a course of time, if you don't change it, you'll gain greater more power and power and power, greater more and more money, and that inequity will just keep on increasing. But if you're smart about it and you make the and you make the fundamental and elemental base of it completely equal, now over a course of time, that time factor becomes positive when it comes to generational. So here's so here's an example. The average value of a house goes up by three to six percent nationally when they have fiber broadband. Just the value of the house, just across the board, right? So if you happen to be in an area which traditionally hasn't had good internet, and now you bring in fiber internet, the value of your house goes up. Okay, so if your value of your house goes up, people will now also potentially move to that area because property values are appreciating. If people now move into that area, it'll become hopefully more culturally diverse, it'll become more representative of society at large, and now you have hopefully the percolation of, ah, my property values are going up, I'm gonna have better jobs because I can access better jobs, so my economic output is gonna be better, my kids are gonna participate more. So now that whole area revitalizes, re-energizes itself, rather than being stuck in this massive flywheel of poverty. I'm not at all suggesting that the internet is the end-all and be-all of alleviating poverty. It's not. But it can play one infinitesimal incremental role in at least addressing it. And the way it can address it is by allowing these marginalized brothers and sisters of ours to play a role in actualizing their lives that they can do it. It's not like anybody's telling them, but with access to infrastructure, they can do it. Now, once they have the power in their own hands, monumentally joyous things happen. So now their kids will graduate from school. If their kids graduate from school, chances are they'll be applied to colleges. If they apply to colleges, which means they'll probably get better jobs than they would have if they were just high school, just high school graduates, right? They'll just, they have more earning potential. And I'm not at all suggesting that all high school graduates will end up in college and make more money. I'm not at all suggesting that, but it's, I'm talking about the optionality of it. So if you're accessing now better, better jobs, okay, you'll be able to now get a bigger house next time around. You may be able to afford a car, right? You'll be able to do things that hopefully move the ball forward from where your parents were, this quality of mobility. Now you have generational wealth. The idea that generation wealth only though only in the past has been accessible to one sector of the population is, is what results in this economic divide. It's cancerous. It's very cancerous because it propagates upon itself. The only way to do it 
is make infrastructure equitable. That makes sense. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I feel like, you know, speaking about internet and broadband service providers, I feel like the thing that often comes up in the news or that we hear a lot about um, and, and that you all are at the forefront of and I think are really leaders in the space are some of these concepts of open access, net neutrality, and really data privacy. Uh, can you speak a little bit to those and, and why they're so important to uh, to GWI and should be to consumers too? Oh, yeah. It's, it, at the end of the day, it's, it's, it is for the consumer, right? So what we're saying and what we do is we're saying if you have the internet, we're not going to pick winners – winners for you and we're not going to throttle it and we're not going to data cap it and we're not going to make one more important than the other that's what at the end of the day net neutrality is we're not saying we're not going to be saying well you know ben yeah you've done great uh with us and so we will make sure that you can watch netflix with 10 screens around you at three o'clock in the morning because we love you and oh by the way Mr. and Mrs. Smith, you know, uh, we're not doing that for you. We're just not because you're not as special as Ben because he watches a ton of Netflix <laughs> and you don't. You know, we're not going to do that stuff. It's you just don't. So so net neutrality is, is one is one way to allow the consumer to say, hey, uh, am I on equal footing with my neighbor or with my citizens? Not just here, but but everywhere. And I think it's an incredibly empowering thing, equality. So that's now the whole idea of data privacy and security is it is obviously something in the conversation. I think we're the only actually we are, I think we're still the only telecommunications company in the United States that's a member of the International Association of Privacy Professionals. That is bonkers, right? Because because as an ISP, right? If you think about it, if the amount of of data that goes, crosses, intersects, flows, is just enorm- enormous. And we are, GWS is this small, small, small player in the big in the big scheme of things. But we're the only members of this massive association, uh, International Association of Privacy Professionals, which, by the way, is run by a dear friend of mine, um, Trevor Hughes. And you know, he's done an amazing job over the last 15 years because it has now been at this forefront of this global movement towards figuring out what constitutes data privacy and security. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, you are you. Your data is yours because that's you. I don't have any right or privilege to be able to take you and monetize you. So that is at the end of the day, the line in the sand, right? Ben, I'm not going to do that. I'm just over my dead freaking body. Am am I not going to do that? Right now, sure, there are legal reasons to provide, uh, uh, you know, under the right legal conditions. Any decent ISP, including us, will provide the information for law enforcement. Great. But other than that, no, no. You know, why why would I why would I take Ben as a data point and then bury you with useless junk, useless information? And monetize it at your expense and not even tell you. Nah, I'm not doing that. Mm-mm. So data privacy and security is something we really believe believe in. We, and I think it's a broader conversation to be had with obviously all the social media stuff going on, right? But as an ISP, 
as a provider of an elemental building block of civilization, we believe that you as a human being own you. A lot of ISPs do, though, right? A lot, a lot of ISPs do. And and what I mean, I think a lot of folks maybe aren't even aware of it or, or know any. I mean, can you speak a little bit to maybe just some awareness for folks? Because I, I know for me, I, I only learned about it because I was doing some work with um, the ACLU of Maine and they're very much on the privacy uh, side of things. And yeah, so I'm just curious, like and I, I was like, oh, my gosh, I had no idea this was a thing. And so I'd be curious if you could enlighten folks a little bit as to some of the darker stuff that's out there. Yeah. So. <clears throat> Actually, uh, recently, John Oliver uh, did actually a piece about data brokers, about how data brokers can pretty much in a millisecond know exactly who you are, what you're and what, what you do. And the way data brokers get data is from data sources. It's not like a data broker just sits there and out of the cosmic portal, they get all this data. No, they're actually buying it and then reselling it. So the idea that a company that is that is to be a trusted member of society would take Ben's data because an ISP knows an ISP under the right conditions. So we don't do this, but other ISPs do. The, under the right conditions, we'll know what you're watching, how much you're watching, what you're doing, because you're browsing. Right. As you browse, if if an ISP wanted to, they will know what you're browsing, mm. what you're spending your money on, mm. how much you're spending your money on, all that stuff. Every time, every time that you are online, even, so the telecommunications carrier, when I say te- like the wireless stuff is known for that. So on your phone, uh, so I have an Android, Android person, even on an iPhone, right? So there are all these privacy settings. If you, for example, allow geotracking, every millisecond of every day, somebody knows where you are. If you allow Facebook, uh, Twitter, any zillion amount of these apps to actually allow for, and you have said yes to the cookies, they know what you're browsing, what you're spending it on, what your eyeballs went to, what kind of ad that you see that you clicked on. They essentially know you, what you're doing. Now, in some of these cases, they also happen to be ISPs. Verizon is an ISP. AT&T is an ISP. Charter is, you know, Spectrum is an ISP. They all provide mobile services. So one instrument that you think you're using and is you think is independent of your, you know, internet is all linked because your phone sends that data to that ISP and the ISP goes, oh, okay, I know what then Ben else is going to do. So I, I think it's incumbent upon society to be very, very, very intentional and careful about allowing these kind of privileges. Now, it is also the, it is also the responsibility of a company to be very transparent about this. Instead of a 30-page, do you agree, service-level agreement that everybody pretty much says after reading the first word on the first page, Ah, yes. Right. You can't you can't bury everything in 30 pages and say, well, you said you were OK with it. That is BS. Now, the Europeans are about five to seven years ahead of us in terms of uh, these kind of protections. There are now laws in place in the EU that companies have to follow to make things transparent, 
They have to protect data, not just to themselves, but if they share data. So all this stuff now is getting legislatively baked in. Enormously complicated and enormously hard to do, but you have to start somewhere because the laws that are on the books, the process, the workflow that are on the books, those are from 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago. The way we exchange information in the 30s and 40s on telephones is distinctly different than it is now. So the whole idea of protecting your data is is one that has societal connotations. It really does. Because if, if I or you decide to use all these apps and we think it's free, it's not free. Right. We think it's right. free, but it's not. All those zillions of stupid ads that populate, that's how that's paid for. And the reason why ads appear is because they know exactly what we're looking for. Yep. That's that's real. Right? So that it's it, it's a, it's a toxic transaction transaction. So so that's what we that's what we do. And open access, I mean I you know, open access is essentially allowing for competition. That's that's what it means. You know? Does our network allow for competition? Is it is it here so that you know it can be utilized by the public by whoever? That makes sense. Which was kind of what you were talking about earlier, yeah. right? Like that being yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean you know yeah yeah you have to transparently empower the consumer. Yeah, it's their right, it's their privilege, it's their important. That's how you save the planet. Which you know, interesting enough, you may say, why is an ISP interested in protecting the planet? How do they do that? Well, here's a little tidbit. So. <clears throat> If you have good broadband, you will drive less. If you drive less, magical things happen in at least some fashion, right? The other interesting thing is um, the old technology, which is on the po- which is on the poles, whether it's cable coax or copper. You know, th- those technologies uh, have materials uh, that were excavated, mined, and had certain impacts. Right, so fiber optic broadband, what we do, fiber optic, is glass. It's inert, and it lasts a long time. So that's how we try to save the planet. The other thing is the amount of power it requires to power a fiber broadband network. On the average, on the average, is fifty to sixty percent less power than existing networks. Wow! So just multiply that, right? So just Again, multiply that over the country for 330 million Americans, you you will make a dent. Now, unless you start mining bitcoins, you will revert that equation in the other way. <laughs> so uh, that's another yeah. conversation for another that's time. That's a whole but, other. Yeah, so. <laughs> but fiber broadband oh. networks use less power. That's cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's that's yeah. really neat. That's cool. Uh, you did a te- a TED talk about. And I know this is changing gears a little bit, but I'm very curious yeah. about this. Uh, you did a TED talk about the three levels of passion. Uh, can you share? Can you speak a little <laughs> bit to that? Share with us what those three levels of passion are. I feel like it'll resonate with our entrepreneurial spirit of our audience here. Uh you know, it's been, it's been. Oh my God, Ben, where did you pull that one? Uh, so I, I know it's been, a, it's been a while. So I would say, with your permission, I, I will either evolve the three levels of passion, or maybe it's still the same. So I, I don't know because I, I frankly, I, you know, as a human being, you grow. I, as a human being, you grow. So um, I support you. So I would say <laughs> the three levels of passion, the three levels of passion. I would say the first, the first level is 
does it matter to you and to society? I really believe that. You know, the passion that comes from it mattering. And, you know, you can get philosophical about matter, what matters. You know, the, the sense of belonging, the sense of that you believe as a human being, you are appreciated, validated, present, acknowledged, respected, listened to, I think is enormously, enormously important for a pet. Any kind of passionate endeavor, right? So the idea that if you're going to do business or create business or be a startup and stuff and everything has to start with the almighty dollar or because you just want to rule the planet and be a dink and be an a-hole. No, 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 no. Do not do not worship the deity of hubris and ego. Please, please do not. So does it matter to you and to humanity? humanity? I think that's the first level of passion. The, the, the second level is, does it incorporate or does it create things that are ephemerally beautiful? Now, I'm not trying to get Kantian about, you know, Immanuel Kant about this, but there are certain things in life that we do that are just inherently beautiful, whatever they may be. But there are certain things that are just really beautiful. And they're really beautiful because they resonate with what we do on a daily basis. I think. So that level of passion is, are you doing something that is beautiful? That is, and, and the thing about beauty is it, it is ephemeral. It, but if it's done right, it tends to then be part of stories. It then tends to go from person to person, generation to generation. It becomes something immortal, though we may never realize it, may never be around for it, may never be appreciated for it, but it has this it has this way of infusing itself into words, pictures, movies, songs. And those are things I feel very passionately about. So are you creating something beautiful? And the third third level, level of uh, passion, and this may be very sort of uh, from the Su Sufi tradition, of which I, I think I belong to, just because of my cultural, my cultural background, is... The, se the sense of, of oneness, right? In, in any kind of startup or endeavor, you're not doing it by yourself. It's impossible to do it by yourself. You're doing it with a cohort of peers, friends, colleagues, other others that are not just an other anymore because now they're part of you, part of this magical soup of creation of endeavor. And so there is that, this osmotic membrane where you, in all due humility, maintain who you are, but now you're sharing with some other group of, of humans, as much as they're doing the same with you. And once that happens, there are certain revelationary moments that I think come to a life of a startup or a business where they realize, holy shit, not only is this fun, not only does it mean something, not only are we doing something beautiful, but we are engaged in an endeavor that just has meaning. And that is a really, really beautiful feeling when you get there. I've been fortunate enough to have that. Fortunate also enough to know when it's absent. Because it's not something, it, it, there's a lot, fair amount of luck involved, fair amount of fortitude, and uh, a lot of things have to happen for this little thing. But, you know, when you have meaning, and the meaning is defined by you. You know, it's, it's not something that, 
is defined by anybody, but it's you. It comes from you. You know, whether it's economic wealth, whether it is knowing that your product will live on and on and on, or because your product had some positive impact on somebody's life, or because it it measured against a stack of noise out there and, and somebody said, oh, oh, that was so cool. You know, that has meaning. And when you have meaning, ah, then you get, then you have a smile on your face and you say, oh, great. <clears throat> Time to go to the microbrewery and celebrate. So, uh, you know, those are the three levels of passion. I mean, I have no idea if that's what I said four, five, six years ago. But I, I suspect I said one of them at least. I love it. Yeah. But, you know, you grow. You just, you know, you, you just sort of progress, hopefully in the right way. But you fail, you fall. And I probably said those things before I had a, you know, I, I, I had a monumental professional failure. And, um, you know, you just learn. In the immortal words of Alfred, the uh, butler for Batman, why do you fail, sir, so that you can get up? <laughs> so, you know, I love that. So, <laughs> Or, or the other immortal words of Captain America in the Avengers, when he, when, when uh, Sam Wilson, uh, the Falcon, says, "On your left," and Captain Wilson, "On my left," you on your left, and he says, "Avengers assemble." You know that kind of stuff. You get to assemble because people are with you. They're on your left. They're coming. That's awesome. Rock and roll. Oh, my goodness. Any final thoughts or, or words of wisdom you want to leave with folks? I think it's important for everybody to know that, you know, one's work during the day is is not necessarily the only thing that they do or should do. You know, we are, as Walt Whitman said, we all contain multitudes of ourselves. And so one of the other things I have been involved with is just this thing called the Indus Fund, www.theindusfund.com which is this micro-loan enterprise that I launched with a whole bunch of investors that works with banks to be able to provide micro-loans to main immigrant business owners. And you may say, well, they should be able to go get a loan. Not so, because the banks traditionally have been hesitant. They're risk-averse. And, you know, they have never been invited to the table where you can work with them and say, you know what? There's 70 to 80,000 immigrants in the state of Maine, and they actually deserve and should be part of the banking community. And so we provide the funds together with the bank. And right now we work with Seaport Credit Union, which is an amazing organization, to provide microloans to immigrant business owners because the first time they get that and they pay that, now they have a credit history. Now if they have a credit history, they can get a larger loan. If they can get a larger loan, now they can hire one more person, buy one more piece of equipment, you know, do one more thing that creates, again, more profit and wealth to them. Now, if they do that, that means, you know, maybe they can get a home mortgage. If they can do that, maybe they can now get a car loan. If they can do that, maybe now their kids can get to places. Their kids can get to the soccer practice or whatever. Great. Now, you know, things sort of stand out. This is the first key. The answer to a main immigrant business owner, profit or nonprofit, should not be, we don't know you, and hence we cannot help you. That's just wrong. So we're trying to change that. And together with the banking community, which is really interesting because there are three things in the United States as in every town, hamlet, village, municipality, city. A bank, post office, library. So if you're thinking of affecting humanity, at least in the United States, 
on some scale that has impact, you try to think of what are those what are those leverage points, and the banking is one. So if we can get seventy to eighty thousand members, brothers and sisters of our society, to partake in banking, I don't know. That's pretty cool. So uh, so that's that's I that's also what I do. So my words words of wisdom, I don't I don't think I have any. But my at least my suggestion would be that there is a time and a place for humble engagement in the social contract in today's world so that the participatory principles of democracy can survive. I think that's our obligation. That is our obligation. And uh, if we can do that all together, um, I think the kids will be proud of us. If we screw up and pay, fail, then they have an enormous task in their hands. And I think they're up for it. But I would like to at least fulfill my obligations to them as a society, to our kids. And then they can then they can do what they think they can do with it. But I have an obligation to that, just like my parents did and your parents did and parents before that. I do want to hear a little bit more about about the Indus Fund. I'm curious, like how what when did you get that started and and, and what have you seen come out of that? Uh, so I oh, great, man. So I started thinking about that probably five, six years ago. I started talking to banks and they were like, yeah, Karen, good try. Well played, young man. Um, and the reason why I started talking about it, because, look, I I've been enormously blessed in my life. I came to this country with 200 bucks in my pocket. You know, I think I've, I've at least fulfilled some level of promise that my parents and uh, my my friends had in me and my family had in me. <clears throat> but, you know, I've seen firsthand, firsthand in the last 25 years, main immigrant business owners going to banks and them getting charged 25% interest rate. What? 25%. Or being told, look, your credit history sucks, or you don't have a credit history, and I can't help you. Here is a man and a, and his wife who are both, you know, masters, masters, educated engineers, doctors, lawyers, trying to do something, and they can't because there is a sense of process, workflow, institutional risk or fear, right? So, and I always thought that that is just BS, <clears throat> just BS. And uh, and I've been on the receiving end of a bunch of that kind of stupidity too, <clears throat> even with quote unquote my success. So five six years I started thinking about this, and I with my friends and colleagues and peers and mentors we said you know, we, I think we can do this, but we said we have to do it with the bank with the banks. It all changed about two years ago with the societal realization through Black Lives Matter to the societal realization of diversity inclusion diversity and inclusion and equity. And within those conversations, I found, oh, okay, Karen, I think you have been talking about something that actually makes sense. You know, it took six years of a lot of chit chat, a lot of coffee, a lot of cookies. And um, yeah, a lot. But the other thing is, I've been also fortunate that, in, you know, in Maine, in Maine, there is a sense of openness. In Maine, there is a sense of, hey, we'll listen to you. Within the right communities, there's still a lot of xenophobia and racism going on in Maine. Let, let's not forget that. But in some of these pockets of conversation, I found an openness to have that, to have that dialogue. And so we created this. So the idea being microloans, so it's up to $10,000, below market rate, so it's 3.5% interest. You can use it for anything you want. So, you know, we are saying, as the Indus Fund, 
we're saying you can use it for anything you want. If you're a nonprofit or a for-profit, we know we we know that okay, and the intake form is really simple. It's not 10 pages, not 12 pages, not 14 pages. <clears throat> it's two pages. And simple questions. And we're saying we trust you as much as you trust us. So let's start this relationship. <clears throat> the Indus Fund is not is is something that the banks have in the background, but it's the banks doing all the work. They do all the underwriting. They're doing all the engagement. They're doing all the follow-up. It's that, it's that relationship. The Indus Fund actually doesn't know who the recipients are. The Indus Fund doesn't need to know because data privacy and security. That's the bank's job. It's not our job. So in the so we started this in October of 2020. But you know, so it was a little slow going, and the bank has done a wonderful job of training everybody because you know you want every branch to be trained, the workflow. And oh, by the way, the forms are available in multiple languages. Uh, you talk to a human being; it's not something you're doing online because guess what? Main immigrant business owners are not online; they don't have access. So you got to be, you got to. This is something that's a tangible human relationship. This is not something transactional, right? <clears throat> so the first year, our goal was to get to five five loans. Um, and we got to three. The next year, our goal was to get to 10. So we said that at the end of 2022, we like to get to 10. Uh, we're already at 10. So we're already at 10 loans, which is pretty cool, man, which is pretty cool. And uh, so let's see how we end, end up the year. So the, loan, the, the fund is a 10-year fund. We're around for 10 years. It'll be a great day when we're not needed anymore. I always say that's a success, when we're not needed. And we share all the data with any other kind of organization or entity that wants to do it in their community. So it's an open source. You know, I'll share all the successes. I'll share where we screwed up. And certainly we're, we're working, going to be working with other banks. So what we want to be able to do is across the state of Maine, we're not privy to any other entity that does stuff like this, either in the state of Maine or nationally. So it can be a template. It doesn't need to be just for Maine immigrants, business owners or nonprofits. It can be for any marginalized community that needs to be part and parcel of economic growth and economic development. And these are things that allow for a community to take that first key, provide that first step. We're not looking for a quantum shift over here. The quantum shift will happen because of the empowerment of the individual or the business. But you got to give them, you got to give them the first key. That's that's our that's our moral obligation as human beings. I think, I think it is. I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for some of those individuals that did those did that for me. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode to learn more about GWI, the Indus Fund, or any of the other organizations that Karem referenced. Be sure to click that link in the show notes to see all the links and materials for this episode on the Responsibly Different website. If you're enjoying this content, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review. It helps other folks like yourself find this content. Till next time, be responsibly different.
This episode was produced by yours truly, Ben Marine, and the music was written and performed by our very own Kevin Oates. To learn more about Responsibly Different and access the other resources we have available to you, visit responsiblydifferent.com. To learn more about our parent company, Dirigo Collective, and Responsibly Different Ventures, visit dirigocollective.com. That's D-I-R-I-G-O collective.com.